Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 250, uh, our quarter millennial um, edition. And and who better? Obviously, we had to make this an exciting and great one. And who better than Mr. Richard E. Grant? We teased that this had happened on social media because we were both very excited about one particular connection that you'll hear about in the podcast i don't want to give any spoilers but you can then go to both our social medias i'm at scrubius pipio and richard is richard e grant obviously um and see the photos that we took in excitement but yeah i was delighted to have this this podcast and the timing was was beautiful i'd lined this up a good month or two ago i went to a preview of can you ever forgive me in november or december of last year and we we penciled in this podcast and then we confirmed it, and then just by chance or wonderful timing, a day, two days before we recorded it, Richard was nominated for his first ever Oscar in, you know, a 40-plus year career. It's it's stunning. The timing was amazing. His video, if you've not seen it, go onto his Twitter and scroll f- through the media. His video, when he heard the news is just beautiful his excitement is wonderful and inspiring um as someone just starting off in the acting industry as such comparatively um it's just beautiful and exciting to see i i i breathe i live and breathe that excitement but i'm aware that it often dies in such industries so to see his joy is wonderful um i won't ramble on t- t- too much actually i've got a lot i want to tell you about but i'll tell you more in the outro because for anyone who's just tuned in for richard which is fair you you don't need to hear me rambling i will say if this is your first episode then we've had some great guests i or last week i had mark miller the writer um of numerous amazing comic books including old man logan which logan was based on or was where where logan was based which starred richard e grant i had dominic monaghan on recently um, or a few, a, a few months back, but in that we talk about Star Wars Episode Nine, which I also talk about a little bit here with Richard E. Grant. Um, l- last week, I also had Adam McKay, the writer of, of Vice, which is up for Oscars alongside Richard E. Grant. Uh, I've had, had Lena Headey. I'm, I'm just I'm not intending to, to link all of these, but Lena is, of course, in um, in Game of Thrones, which starred Richard E. Grant. Um, but yeah, have a scroll through. There's loads of really good actors and musicians and all sorts of other stuff. So check that out. Um, I will tell you that uh, it, normally people don't know about who's on next week or, or future episodes unless they belong to patreon.com slash pip, which is a dollar a month. And I always post a selfie or photo after every one I've recorded. Uh, the Richard one went down a treat. And yeah, I also do I, I, a thing I wanted to speak to Richard about here, but didn't get a chance to. So I can speak about this and it not be a spoiler of the episode is his spoken word dance song he did, which I heard about on on uh, on Would I Lie to You? I love that show. Um, but yeah, I've started off in spoken word, and on my Patreon I do poem of the of the month, the first Monday of the month. So starting on February fourth, the first Monday of the month, I upload a spoken word piece I've written to kind of, yeah, about, um, uh, not about, but I've lost my track completely there. This shows the quality of my spoken word, I'd imagine. No, a spoken word piece. I found an old hard drive and found a load of old 
poems I wrote at least 10 years ago and I decided to record them and release a w- one a month on Patreon along with with loads of other stuff. But yeah, it's a dollar a month over there and I'm launching some new merch this week on com. so keep an eye over there or keep an eye on my social media. But I said I wouldn't ramble and I've rambled on enough. I will mention that next week's guest is Joel Egerton. Uh, so that's a, another hugely exciting one. Um, but other than that, let's let's uh, get on with episode 250 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Richard E. Grant. Right, so I'm joined today by Richard E. Grant, and and what a time to catch you! Um, your your Oscar nom, and then your your reaction to your Oscar nom just was was wonderful online, and um, had the the unbridled jub or an unbridled jubilation that's kind of rare in or can be beaten out of you in such an industry. So <laughs> so, how's it all feeling at the moment? Uh, beyond all. Just beyond all expectation, because I'm 61 and three quarter years old. I've never been nominated or awarded anything. So to have this in the fourth decade of my being in show business is beyond anything that I could possibly have imagined and have never experienced before. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's a weird one because I think everyone can agree that awards aren't what you do this for. It's not what the art's about, but. I also hate when people are negative on awards because it's lovely to get appreciation for something that you've done. To know something you've done is of, of, of high quality and is appreciated, I guess. Yeah, and I think that I'd, I'd won 21 Critics Awards across the USA, Canada, and in the UK. And that's, you go, well, okay, that seems extraordinary in itself. But when you get nominated for the Screen Actors Guild and for the... Um, Oscars and the BAFTAs, you know that that's people in your own industry who voted for you. Yeah. So that feels really different because they know what you've done and you know what they've done. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's any, any, any peer group that nominates, you know, w- within that, then you feel that's the highest accolade that you can get, really. Completely. B- b- because it's fair to say that, particularly in modern times, and I'm a fan of all films, but the biggest films aren't necessarily the best films. It's it's the same in most mediums. They're yeah. the broadest and most appealing. So that's not to disparage them in any way. Um, I'm a fan of superhero films and stuff like that. And I want to talk at some point about Logan as well, because oh, yeah. I love that. But it does make a difference. That It's, it's, it's why those kind of pats on the back or, or tips of the hat mean something, because it's saying, look, and particularly over here, before it's, it's come out in, in the UK now, it's like... I mean, let's hope it does a wonderful box office, but you've already won. <laughs> you know, anything else on top is is, is a prize, is gravy yeah, now, right? It's true. Because yeah. it's already, you've made, it, it turned into what you hoped it would be. Yeah. I mean, it, it's extraordinary because this movie was made on a shoestring budget over 26 days in Manhattan exactly a year ago in January. Wow. Um, all on location where these real-life characters that we play actually operated. Yeah. So... To have all this sort of awards attention and box office success a year later is you know, not anything that anybody could possibly have anticipated for a story like this. Yeah, and and for someone who's kind of always worked um, 
again, we've got 40 minutes, which is a good amount of time, but I've really had to cherry pick the bits. Obviously, I want to focus on, on can you forgive me, but there's a lot I want to talk about. But for someone who's always worked, you'll know as well as anyone that film and TV is such a collaborative work that at the time of creating even, you can have a good idea of the quality, but Mm -hmm. you can't be certain in any way because you then walk away and leave it to someone else to... To, to put together so in a way you must have got used to the ups and downs of that relationship so to have one now that you walk away and it turns out it is as good as I assume it felt in the moment yeah but uh, you know even even with that it's I think it's like the process of falling in love with somebody that you if you look at on paper you know if you're doing internet dating you look you work out what the person is or who you think you can have something in common with then you actually meet them the sort of you know luck lightning in a bottle moment that we had when Melissa McCarthy and I met for two hours on a Friday in January 2017, and then started working and filming on Monday, the following Monday. Nothing really prepared us for how good that relationship would instantly be, and that would then translate into an on-screen friendship. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it is absolutely key. The story. I mean, I won't go into it in huge detail, but it's about, um, it's the true story of um, Melissa McCarthy is playing Lee Israel um, and you're playing her her kind of partner in grime, I guess, um, yeah. Jack, uh, Jack Hock. And Lee was essentially, uh, her story is that she's a forger, essentially. She, forged, she made uh, fake works of literature, but she was a writer and yeah. she made these amazing fake works of literature. So... It's this crazy and amazing story, but it really felt... I mean, it's great that that both Melissa and yourself are getting plaudits for this because it felt that either character on their own wouldn't quite have... have worked. It needed that perfect foil and that perfect kind of... Uh, it's hard to say friendship because it is a, a, a love-hate yeah. told, played out there, but they mm-hmm. kind of need each other. Yeah. So did you find that uh, with Melissa... Did you find that that initial meeting that you hit it off in allowed you both to take these characters exactly where they needed to be? Yeah, completely. Because you have to, you know, because as you said earlier, it's such a collaborative you know, art form, if you like, and that you're only as good as the person that you're playing opposite and the words that you're given to say and interpret. So the, the screenplay by Nick, um, uh, Jeff Whitty and uh, Holof Center was so smart and so cleverly accurate about dealing with the loneliness and desperation of these people and also yeah. their childlike humour in the midst of it all, that that in combination made made the working process very easy. And also we had a very compassionate and open-minded collaborative director in Marielle Heller. Right. So it was a very interesting detestosterized environment compared to Logan, which I just finished a couple of months before that, in right. which there were 300 men in, you know, huge amount of armor and trucks and tanks and guns and special effects and camera cranes and all that stuff, stunt guys with arms bigger than my legs. Yeah. Uh, and whereas this was a predominantly female-led crew, co-writer, producers, director, leading actor. So it made for a very, very different atmosphere and proved very fruitful. That's a fascinating detail because 
again, I think it is one of the things that we're going to see more and more. Now we're having such a push for for women and for people of colour and things like that. It's amazing how even in the best, like the first film I was ever lucky enough to work on was, was a, a Guy Ritchie film. And I adored my time there, but exactly the same. It was so male and yeah. so, you know, testo charge and, te- and testo charge that, that that's that's going to produce a different product than Definitely. than an equally lovely and enjoyable set that's yeah. that's more either more balanced or more tipped in the other direction. Which again, people often don't realise that the fastest way to equality isn't simply equality it's to tip the scales the other way to level things out to shake a few bits off that end of the of the scale so that must have been yeah an exciting and and invigorating thing to do having come from that kind of 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 situation i guess yeah and also uh, it's also to do with the subject matter that it was it is entirely emotionally driven as opposed to logan which is you know the end of a huge franchise and that also had a very, very clear emotional line through it. Yeah, um, that uh, you know, Wolverine was dying at the end of it, but it's crammed with an enormous amount of on-screen violence. That yeah. uh, you know, can you forgive me? Doesn't have no. in the same way. And it, it, it was. I, I loved the way the characters were written as well because they were lovable rogues, but 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 heavy on the rogue. It wasn't just simply that, oh, aren't they adorable? They yeah. were nasty in places, and they double-crossed, and they did some some quite sh- shady things. So it would have been easy, I think, to tell the, to paint this story as, oh, look at them, aren't they adorable? It, but you find yourselves loving them with a slight conflict, loving them in spite of what how you see in them act in some ways and things like that. So how was that as a character to get your teeth into? Well, I think that uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. I just think that... If you want these these two people are near destitute and in such lonely, uh, desperate circumstances, living in Manhattan in the early nineties, and trying to scrape a living together, so they fall into a life of crime, not by intention but out of necessity. And yeah. so, you know, I'm condoning the condoning their criminality, but I think that because you you understand how they end up forging or Lee Israel forging dead writers' literary letters and then selling them at great profit. Uh, when you see how she ch- how she charges upon this and works it out, and then in the movie you, 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 you go step by step in tandem with how that develops for her. So I think, therefore, you feel a kind of sympathy or, you know, as you say, even if it's conflicted, you, you, you understand why they're doing what they do. Yeah, and it's it's wonderfully humanising in in that way because yeah. it allows you to completely understand this. It's, I mean, the stories of one of the great literary crimes, essentially. Yet yeah. you do kind of go, yeah, I get it, <laughs> and and I think that's really important in film and things like that because there's so much in film that we allow ourselves to go, oh, the criminals are monsters, and yeah. that takes them out of the real world. And yeah. the fact is, we it's lovely to watch films, but we live in the real world, and if we think the criminals are all going to have big horns and mm-hmm. spiky tails, then we won't r- recognise them. So, well, equally, we won't empathise w- w- with them. So it allows that empathy and that connection, because you do find yourself going, I get it, is it that bad? Yeah. And then it's like, well, yeah, it's a lot of money and a lot of people's hearts broken, because it also, beautifully, all the smaller characters, 
you get their passion for what they're or what they think they're buying and things like yeah. that. So you understand that it's not just a, a financial cheating; it's an emotional cheating. You thought you found this amazing thing from your favourite writer, and it's it's not. It's a fraud. Yeah, but yeah. again, I guess the question the question comes. <laughs> this is an odd one, but what, uh, what's the difference in that actual emotion? Because you you got to feel that still. You got to read that letter, yeah. and you got to go, wow. Have that feeling. It then turns out not to be true. But would you rather have never have experienced that emotion, or would you rather have that emotion and then have it have it crumbled? So uh, it's, it's a it's, yeah, it's a fascinating yeah, one in that way. I agree with you, and I think that that what my best way of saying this was Judge Judy, the TV yes, the TV judge. I adore Judge um, Judy. She she arrived with Candice Bergen at the premiere in New York of the of the film. And I said to her, Judge Judy, if Lee Israel was in your court, what would you do? Would you send her to jail? And she said, no, I'd have given her a light fine. I said, why? She said, because nobody got killed, nobody got hurt in the process. Yes, some people lost some money because they bought a letter that was turned out to be a forgery. But Lee Israel was so smart at what she did and so witty. And she said the whole area of memorabilia, authenticating autographs and anything celebrity-driven, she said, it's such a grey area to begin with yeah. of how you authenticate that. And she said, I, I kind of rooted for her because Lee Israel outscammed the scammers. Yeah. So I said, so Judge Judy, you're saying that people who deal in autographs and memorabilia are, are all crooks. She said, no, I think it's a grey area. Yeah. So I thought that was... That was an interesting way of looking at the whole thing. I love that, and I couldn't couldn't be happier that you brought up Judge Judy. I, I struggle taking time off. I'm a, I'm a, a real workaholic, and what got me through Christmas was yeah. Judge Judy being on all the time and World's Strongest Man. <laughs> They're the two things that get me through that period where no one's answering emails, yeah. no one's wanting to get back to working on scripts or castings or anything else. So Judge Judy and World's Strongest Man have saved me at the end of last year. I'm so. going to tell her there's a man in London... <laughs> That you have saved, Judge Judy. Hundred um, percent. You're, you're. I mean, speaking of, of of writing, you're a keen diarist, right? I am, and have yeah. been you, your whole life. So I have been. Yeah. How's how's the diary? I mean, is it bruised <laughs> over this last week or two? Because again, the, I can't keep up. It's constant reactions of here's one person, here's one awards body yeah. praising this this work. Here's another, and it's also that thing of. There's been so much across the board. There seems to be praise on the writing, on the direction, on the performances. It's not just like with some films where there'll be this iconic performance and yeah. that's all that's getting all the attention. Mm-hmm. It's, it is people are finding what they love in all sorts of places across the production, I guess. Agreed. My, my only real regret, especially at this zeitgeist moment of the Me Too movement, is that after all this bleating about there not being sufficient female directors in film or be or they're being recognized that Mariel Heller the director of this film that I'm in has not been nominated for either the Golden Globe or the Oscars or a BAFTA whereas almost well not almost every single other nominee is male and you know it begs the question that yep that the screenplays have been nominated in all these awards that she had a part in 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 writing as well but how do you have a leading actor, the uh, leading actor, uh, Melissa McCarthy, and myself get nominated in all these things, but they didn't happen in isolation. Yeah. They were 
they happen as a result of her brilliant direction. Yeah. So that is, you know, heart sore for us. But she said in an, on an Instagram uh, post yesterday, she said, I don't feel snubbed, I feel seen, which I thought was a very smart and generous way of addressing the issue because so many people have sent a kind of condolences messages saying, you know, you should have been nominated and you should have had this, you should have had that. She's so joy-filled that, that the film has got three nominations. But that's that's the one slight caveat that I have about all this. You know, it's it would have been a real bonus if she had been honoured for her work. Yeah, and, and, and her reaction has been beautiful, and I think it's it's truly a sign of a good, a great director, because yeah. the best, or the directors I've enjoyed the most speaking to on here have been people like David Lowry and Desiree Atkavan, who will kind of say, look, so much of a director's job is to put it all together to get it working and then to step back and not take the credit and not feel I need to imprint myself Mm -hmm. and things like that. So I guess if she can believe that approach, then that will go some way to to soften in the blow of not being recognised. Because in reality, the performance is being recognised, is her being recognised. Absolutely. Again, it's not just this one standout performance. Both of you guys are getting recognised across the board and that has to be down... To, to her. the situation, the to, uh, 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 to the direction and to the yeah the atmosphere created there. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a it's a wonderful thing. Um, an area of film again, I think it's it's fascinating because I I was doing spoken word and, and, and music as a career for ten years, and I moved into acting a couple of years ago. And it's fascinating how much of a collaborative work it is, and what is credited and what isn't credited mm-hmm. a lot of people have a, f- a favorite director not so many will have a favorite writer unless mm-hmm. it's a writer director yeah. and things like that but an area that has struck me as arguably or as important as any other area but ignored and i wouldn't like to say that these two things are, are related but it seems to be rather ignored it also seems to be female dominated mm-hmm. is ca- is casting yeah and the casting in this was Amazing! It must have been. I mean, you said kind of a lightning in a a a, a it, it, it must have been. It's a once in a, a lifetime character to to get asked to play, right? And yeah. and the casting is so key to that. Yeah, absolutely right. That, Jen Houston is the person that did that. Yeah, she cast me first got in so Girls. Many great stuff. Yes, in yeah. Girls. Yeah. And w- what I do not understand is New that, York based. Yeah, as, is that the none of the academies have or organisations have. Uh, n- n- nominees n- nominating category for casting yeah and you think well who has filled all these movies with the extraordinary characters and actors that, that they have time and again and you know you could argue that oh a director or a writer chooses the leading actor on which the film gets financed but even then they you know a casting director is absolutely crucial yeah. So I think that they are the unsung heroes and heroines. And I, I do agree with you. I wonder whether it is because it is so, so female-centric that it hasn't been the push in, in the way that if it had been predominantly men doing casting, we this issue would have been addressed and sorted years ago. Yeah. And so I hope it does change. Yeah, completely. It's, it's fascinating that because you mentioned girls there as well, and I think even more so in TV because it's the casting that – it's 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 the constant j- j- job there. It's not just yeah. here we've found our people and move on. Absolutely. Casting are responsible for breathing life into shows two seasons on, three seasons mm-hmm. on, and, and finding these these new 
amazing people to put on screen and 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 bring something extra. I owe my entire career to the fact that Mary Selway, the late Mary Selway, um, who was a casting director, cast me in, or well, put me in front of Bruce Robinson and cast me in with Nell and I thirty two years ago. Yeah. So I owe that to her. It's not. It wasn't an agent that got me that job. She did. Yeah. And time and again, casting directors and the majority of them women have have affected all the leaps and bounds that I've had in my career in the last you know, 35 years. Completely. I, 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 every now and then, because I'm always so high in praise of casting directors, I have some people in the industry thinking I'm kind of being, I'm kissing ass to, 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 to get pulled. But it was exactly the same. The three or four casting directors I met before I had an agent yeah. are all the people who have, and, and again, I've got amazing agents, I'm not discrediting yeah, that yeah. at all, but they're the people that, seem to have pushed everything along each time or recommended yeah. in this place and recommended in that place. And that, yeah, as you said, that gives you a career. That doesn't only prolong it, that starts it in the first place and, yeah. and continues it on. Yeah, it really does. And they they think laterally, vertically, in every which way, in a way that I think agents with the best intention don't read a script or, or approach a script in the same way that an agent does. And I think that yes. it's, a, it's really unsung hugely creative and important job so i agree five thousand percent with you <laughs> so so what was so you were first cast by jen in 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 girls yeah what was the kind of gap between that and this because this because jack hock five feels years. like a character that was made for you the, the real life guy and it also i know there's been some there's obviously going to be some comparison but it feels like we're seeing with now 30 years on, or, 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 or however far on, an infinitely amount Right, of time because they're on. both alcoholics. It's, so they're they have they're that. alcoholics, they're both kind of broken, they're both quite... I mean, Jack's a far more l- lovable character, I think, yeah. and a softer and warmer character, but mm-hmm. it feels like you're seeing that kind of the years on softened edges and worn down. So right. so <laughs> it, ha, how is that to, to, to get put forward or offered a character like that? I didn't when I, when I took the part on. I thought, well, yes, he's an alcoholic, so he shares that with Withnail. But because Withnail was so incredibly entitled, selfish, arrogant, and misanthropic, what I what I loved about Jack Hawk is that he's essentially seemed to me, if you put him in animal terms, like a Labrador that he he goes up to anybody and licks them into submission, whether it's for. <laughs> booze a bed a bonk or whatever so that willingness to to befriend anybody even if he does have an ulterior motive you know trying to get booze off them or a bed or whatever but that garrulousness and gregariousness is something that is very attractive to play because you feel that you could put him down anywhere and he would make a friend out of somebody and he forges this friendship with lee israel because he is the one person prepared to put up with her acute misanthropy and meanness and he just barges through that and says well i'm going to take no for an answer i'll i'll help you clean the cat shite from underneath your bed when anybody else you know the the filth inspectors of new york is saying no no, you've got to clean up first before we come in there yeah yeah it's 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 a it's a rare display of of of, a relentless charm that isn't in any way aggressive or smarmy or intimidating it's it's a constant onslaught of just pleasantness and and, and lightness that 
that I said in, in in a lot of characters that would then seem sleazy or or something else. But it, as you said, it's it seems to be just chasing anything he can get as mm-hmm. as, as such, whether that be food, drink, uh, a roof over the head. Um, I mean, we've, we've touched upon uh, upon alcohol there. I believe you can't drink or can't. Yeah, is allergic. It, what is the the deal there? What's oh, when I was seventeen, I found out because my father's an alcoholic, and I thought that. It might be psychosomatic that I could – nine minutes was the longest that I could keep alcohol down without throwing up and being oh, very, wow. very ill for 24 hours. So I went to a doctor and he said to me, well, I'll do a blood test on you. And he, once he got the results back, he asked me if I had Asian blood. And I said, not, not that I know of. Why do you ask? And he said, because Chinese and Japanese tribes have the least amount of this enzyme or none, as um, likewise Aboriginals, Inuits and Native American – Indians. Mm. So I said, well, I don't, I'm not aware of any kind of heritage from any of those cultures. So he said, you have no enzyme in your blood. So you can, you can never drink. And I said, so it's nothing to do with the fact my dad was, you know, is a drunk. And he said, no, it's nothing to do with that. But he said, you can never, ever drink. Wow. So, you know, what you don't know, you don't miss really. Yeah. And and it's it's fascinating. Um, I, I, I used to, I now drink Three or four times a year, if that. I don't right. feel I've ever had a problem. I just it, the appeal has stopped. I grew right. up. I've grown up in Essex, so right. obviously I was born into. Well, you drink to get drunk, right? Then maybe th- throw up and keep drinking a bit more. But as soon as I was old enough to go, well, do I want to drink? Yeah, that was when I kind of stopped because I was okay. like, well, no, ninety percent of the time I don't want to drink. But it's a fascinating one, and it's interesting to hear of of your dad there because initially I was going to ask. Or, or comment on how strange it is that someone who can't drink and has never r- really drunk yeah. uh, would launch their career with uh, with now yeah. and now have this crowning moment d- decades into your career with right. Jack. Um, but I guess you've taken a lot of, or have you taken a lot of that from 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 witnessing your father's? I suppose uh, so. I think battles? that I think that what more than anything that I've observed about people when they are lathered is that there's there's an enormous amount of concentration to get through the door or to get across a room, trying yes. to be upright. So just that concentration itself is funny to observe. And you know, obviously, if you're not drunk yourself, you see that this sort of amount of Willpower to kind of go oh, through that door without yeah. looking like I'm completely, you know, blotted. So that's that's what I've just tried to imitate, really. I love it. It's it's, it's fascinating. I won't name the family member, but I had a trip um, in Amsterdam once, and a family member and their partner um, tried weed for the first time. Yeah, and and the two of them did, and one was a bit giggly. But the giveaway for me was the other one, who was frantically going. I don't know what's wrong with them. What's wrong with them? What's up with them? Was, was, was the trying to remain, trying to yeah. appear sober, yeah. was was the biggest giveaway. Then someone who's a bit giggly or seems a bit dry is like, oh, no, you're clearly off your face at the moment. This Bullseye. Is, yeah. This is the giveaway. Exactly. Um, I've just, I have to comment. I've noticed that you wear two watches. Oh, yeah. My I've, da- I've always worn two watches. Oh, you have? I've never really bumped. I've, I've been asked it in interviews loads of times, oh. but I've never... Really well, you're the only person I've ever met that does wear two. Well, there we go. What Why do you wear two? I've not got a good... Like, genuinely... I was working in a record store and I went to Argos in my lunch break. Yeah. No, before work. And I couldn't decide between the silver and the gold Casio. Right. And I bought the silver. Yeah. And by my lunch break, I regretted it. So I went and bought the gold 
And from then on, I've gone through numerous silver and gold Casios, but always, always two, and it feels natural and comfortable. And when I'm, I was touring in music, I'd have, have one on local time and one on home time or, or girlfriend time, depending right. on my relationship status okay. at the time. Um, yeah, and I found that handy. But yeah, what's your... Oh, my father gave me his watch when he was dying, and then oh, wow. I lost it, and my wife bought me another watch, and then I found it a couple of years later in a drawer, and so I wore, wear both. So it's sentimental and practical. So exactly like you, I've got uh, where I am on the left-hand side, yeah. and on the other side, um, on my right hand, is Swaziland time, where I grew up, so that I call people at the right time of the day. And because I'm going to Los Angeles, back and forth at the moment, I set my right-hand watch to LA time, so that when I speak to my daughter in London, I've got the right time in my left hand. That's perfect. So sentimental and practical. Again, every time I've ex- everyone I've ex- explained that to has said, you, you know you can get times on your phone. I'm like, yeah, but it's on my wrist. Yeah, exactly. That's easier than looking it up on my phone and switching into it. So I can glance and go, exactly. oh, I'll give them a ring. It's lunchtime. <laughs> it works. It, it works perfectly. Well, you're the first person that I met that does wear two. That's one Snap. And, and the same. So that's, that's, that's a, a wonderfully exciting. Um how was your kind of route into – I mean, you mentioned uh, Swaziland as, and that's where you grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, was acting always your, your goal and desire? And if so, what was the – what were the options out there? It's not – There were no options. Yeah, so what, what I would did, imagine. When you, when you do what you do, when you grew up, did you – was it clear what career path you were going to – no, Follow. no. I I was told adamantly or vehemently that the goal is to get a job in the to get a train into the city yeah. and get a job. You had to wear a suit. Yeah. It was years, genuinely, ten years later when I hadn't done that that it occurred to me. N- no one had ever said what that job was. Right. Just put on a suit and go in the city and you earn money. So that was kind of the goal there. And is that I, what your dad did? Um. Yeah. Yeah. My dad worked on. Yeah. My dad. He didn't work in the city, but he worked. By the time I was old enough to know what was going on, he started off. Sweeping the floors in a factory, but by the time I was old enough, he was a manager. So it was. It's put on a suit, go and um, yeah. engage in that. So yeah, it, I g- g- genuinely think my career in spoken word, in music, and now in acting and, and broadcasting as well has all been just avoidance of getting what I would term a real job. <laughs> like if people ask the motivation, it's like I just don't want to get a real job. So yeah. I've done all these other things, and they happen to. Is have he worked. proud of you for what you've done? Completely. I was really lucky that my parents. Both at an early age, despite what the schools or area would kind of push as here's what you need to do academically, yeah. they always made it really clear to me and my brother that as long as we're happy, that's all That's all that matters. We can be right. w- working in a corner shop, we can be working in a bank, we can be on TV. As long as we're happy and enjoying what we do, that's what counts. So yeah, I was lucky in that respect. So you've never been cast to play a guy in a suit? Not yet, no. But when I was doing, <laughs> I, I, again, I, I did music and spoken word, and it, it gracefully allowed me to tour the world doing that. And for the bulk of that career, I would w- wear a suit on stage because wow. I, I, when I was working in record stores and stuff like that, on a night out, I'd wear a suit because it felt like the opposite. Yeah. In record stores, I'd wear jeans and a T-shirt, and then I'd go home, I'd put on a suit, and I'd go for a night out. Voguing. And it felt like the opposite of you put on a, <laughs> you're wearing a suit at work, you come home, you put on a jeans and T-shirt, yeah. and you go out. Oh, so, makes yeah. total sense. Yeah, it made a sense to me there. But what was? how did you even conceive of this as a career when you were growing up in an area where it's not, it's not an option? Because I looked at our photo albums, and I've got uh, pictures of when I was seven years old making theatres out of shoeboxes that I painted scenery on the back. 
cut out loli- uh, figures from magazines, stuck them on lollipop sticks, and then used them as characters. Then made glove puppets when I was a bit older. Then I got string puppets. Um, at that time, there was a company in England called Pelham Puppets, based in Marlborough. Right. And I used to get two of those for Christmas and two of them for my birthday every single year, all through my teenage years, and had a, a full-size marionette theatre in my parents' garage and did shows in the school holidays to earn wow. money and birthday parties and then did amateur plays, school plays at the Swaziland Theatre Club. So it was – if I look back on it, the line of it was very, very clear. But what was unclear is that – I didn't really believe that I could make a living doing that because I had nobody in my family had done it. I didn't never met a professional actor. And my father not unreasonably said to me, you know, you have to go to university, you've got a good brain. Uh, I think you could become a good barrister or something like that or a writer. But I think becoming an actor is way too risky. And I think you'll end up destitute and spend your life in tights and wearing makeup and avoiding yeah. a buggery. So um, he advised me not to do that. Yeah, But I... I did go to university, but I combined it with a um, theatre training. So he then conceded that I could earn a living doing that. But I think he he thought I would never never amount to much. And he was dead at 53. And I just wish he couldn't, you know, 36 years later, he could see what has happened to me now. Yeah. I've made a good living out of it. Yeah, a, a very good living out of it. And it's, <laughs> it's it seems, again, all the more perfect that With Now was the first role because yeah. you've got the influence of, of having witnessed alcoholism and yeah. then you're playing a character who is essentially what your father warned you you would end up being <laughs> if, if, if you go into acting exactly this is where you will end up it's yeah. like okay well if i start there yeah. i can't end up there exactly. let's let's kind of let's <laughs> let's let's play the game <laughs> i love that um and another there's a again we've only got five or or, or ten minutes are left and there's again as you said there's a such a broad career to discuss but one of the films i think is is an underrated a classic and i rewatched it recently t- to make sure because mm-hmm. you, you can never be, be sure on these things these yeah. films that you like it's amazing is 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 la story all oh, right and it was again it was really early on it was in your first five years or so yeah 1990 of, of working um how was that to work on because steve martin was someone that seemed to come along and do his thing and then happily trot off, like be the biggest thing in the world and genuinely genius in all these things. And then, yeah, and he, he had – I met him at the premiere of How to Get Ahead in Advertising yes. in St. Martin's Lane in 1989. And he said to me, um, hi, I'm Steve Martin. I said, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> he said, I've, ri- I've written a movie called LA Story and there's a part in it for you. Would you come and do it? And I said, yes, of course I would, never believing that it would happen. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, a month later he was good to his word. And everybody had warned me that he was very socially difficult to to get to know and he would be very remote and all of those things. So I was fully prepared for, you know, ice station zebra. Yeah. And then the moment I got to L.A., I was staying at the Chateau Marmot Hotel and I got a call at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, I'll never forget it. And he said, would you come around for breakfast? So... I said, yeah, okay. So I got in a high car and drove into Beverly Hills. Um, I met him and his wife. And I seemed never really to leave their house or their company. So it was an amazing experience. We've now had 30-year-long initially phone, subsequently email, letter writing, ongoing, almost daily correspondence, which he has collected. And he said it's 
sort of like an Encyclopedia Britannica of correspondence. I love that. That's absolutely yeah. beautiful. Of um, it's 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 not as as regular, but once a year, me and um, and and Alan Moore, who's yeah. one of my favourite writers, yeah, he, he doesn't have email or anything like that, and we'll wow. at Christmas we'll send each other a Christmas card, but. You know the kind you used to get from nans that have got a lot of, and Mary's doing well, and this is what, and it's my favourite thing to get. I, I, this year it came the late. year report. Like, it's not happened, and then it came a few days into into January, and I couldn't have been happier as I sat there just gleefully reading that because there is something in in real correspondence rather than the the fake interaction or or, or the synthesising interaction that we have through social media and things like that, which. Yeah. It has its ups and downs. There is a difference of that more in depth. Let's actually let's. It's catch more than two hundred and forty characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And um, well, I'll start to wrap things up here as uh, as our time is coming to an end. But I wanted to just touch upon all the ones we've talked about so far. Have been these amazing, unique original stories, mm-hmm. original screenplays as such, or you know, adapt- adaptations from the book and stuff like that. How has it been to step in to? Huge things. You've done it with the biggest TV show of all time in Game of Thrones, yeah. and you're doing it with the biggest films of all time in Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> how how do you find that as a as a different prospect? Because you, in general, you're stepping in. I would imagine more as a cog rather yeah. than necessarily as with now or as as Jack. Absolutely. You, How's that adjustment? You parachute into a world that is completely established, has its own rules and regulations and yeah. fan base. So you feel enormously privileged that you get the chance to do it. But I just wish that that I wasn't only in just one Star Wars movie, albeit the final one, yeah. um, and had been in more Game of Thrones right from the beginning because yeah. it's such, you know, they're extraordinary franchises, both of them. Absolutely. When when the, the person who first cast me, or one of the casting directors, I hustled a meeting with before yeah. I had an agent who put me in a, a TV sh- show called Taboo. It was Nina Gold who cast yeah, Game of Thrones. Brilliant. And she said... Got the look, yep. got a putting game thrones, and then as it turns out, obviously all they're doing now is killing people. They're not really adding any new people. <laughs> no. So I was just at that point as well where I'm like, oh come on! If I'd got, it, if I'd met you a year or two earlier, I could have had a bit more of that. But yeah. well, thank you very much for your time. It's oh, been an thank you. pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers. Two watches. Yes, indeed. You've been listening to Scrooge Pitt's Discretion Pieces. There we go. How lovely was Richard? I, I That was an absolute joy. I, I adored chatting with Richard. Um, I was the first interview of his day, and I think there's a pressure there to, to s- set the tone, to try and get the energy up and all that kind of thing. And I feel it couldn't have gone better. We really just seemed to connect. As you saw, we connected over being the only two people that either of us have met to wear two watches and we posted some pictures of that on our socials head over there at scroobius pipio and at um at richard e grant but yeah it was an absolute joy and go out and watch can you ever forgive me because it's amazing it deserves the plaudits it's it's getting what i needed to tell you about that i didn't want to ramble on about at the start is something incredibly exciting is happening on monday and it's a magazine called Pod Bible is launching. It's a free magazine that I was asked to be involved in, and I've kind of j- j- jumped on board excitedly. It's a free podcast magazine. It's going to be given out on Monday in 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 London by me. 
Stu Whiffin and Adam Richardson, who are the three main contributors. There's also that there's interviews in there with Adam Buxton and Craig Parkinson, um, and content from Alex Fox and Buddy Peace, the producer of this show, has done a column on production. Um, and also, there's just g- generally the general body of the magazine is our recommendations of podcasts that we're listening to and that we're enjoying so yeah but we're going to be giving them out ourselves so i'll firm up the details on social media but the plan at the moment i think going off the top of my head here so it might change is to give them out in and around fenchurch street station at 7 a.m on the 4th on monday the 4th of feb then liverpool street at 8 a.m and old street at 9 a.m and then we'll be doing some stuff knocking about in the day but then in the evening we're going to be doing i think tottenham court road at 4 p.m king's cross at 5 p.m and camden at, at 6 p.m and we'll be filming a lot of this so if you want to come down and be excited and be part of it we'll, or we'd love to see you but yeah we're just excited to launch this magazine it's in partnership with acast and spotify who are two of the biggest podcast providers and platforms in the world so it's mad that they're involved. Um, yeah, it's just really exciting. Uh, we're also going to pop along, hopefully, to to Richard Herring's live at the Leicester Square Theatre podcast because that's on February fourth, and he's he's interviewed in a future episode uh, issue. So we figured we'll go along to that and give some out. So if you go into that, that's great. If you weren't going but fancy a free magazine and that tips you over, then head along to that. Um, we're also going to hopefully be popping along to Brett Goldstein's films to be b- 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 oh got a stutter films to be buried with on February fifth at the BFI. So th- that's with Lolly Adafope, who's amazing. So yeah, that's worth going and checking out. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the plan. If you're not in London and you're really keen on not missing out, then the good news is there will be a digital version that launches a week or so later. But basically, the best thing to do is is f- follow Pod Bible on all social media. It's at Pod Bible, and as well as posts about the f- the free magazine, you'll generally get content throughout the months about podcasts and what we're feeling and what's good, and recommending stuff. So it's worth a follow and worth a look. So yeah, that's pretty exciting, right? Um, I'll I'll stop rambling now. I just wanted to tell you all about that. Um, what what else? do i need to tell you yeah we are launching some dope merch if it's not out already it'll be out on friday it's at speechdevelopmentrecords.com i know i've been hyping it a lot but it's the most excited i've ever been about some merch it's uh, uh, when you see our announcement video you will actually shit your pants so go take your phone into the toilet sit down and get comfy and then check my social media so basically every time you check my social media from now until mid mid friday at the latest you should try and make sure you're on a toilet um first it's not new it's not scroobius pit pants so that's worth noting but that's that's now giving me a thought so yeah anyway that's coming soon and it's very exciting i think that's everything i'll see you all next week with joel egerton and i've got some amazing paper lined up the patreon lot know this patreon.com slash scroobius pip only a dollar a month it's less than a pint a month. If you feel if you bump me into bumped into me in the pub every month, you'd buy. Or say if you feel you'd bump you'd if you bumped into me in the pub once every four months, you'd buy me a pint. Then 
just jump on Patreon and you're effectively buying me a pint, you know, every four months, which is nice of you. But it's a, yeah, anyway, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with that. I, 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 I said it in a previous episode and it worked and was succinct and, and good, but yeah, anyway. <sighs> I'll see you all next week. Ta ta. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.